Neil Modi, it's crazy out there. Are you in this? Uh... <laughs> to say the least, it's crazy out there. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I think we have the highest number of new cases worldwide of COVID. Seventeen months into the pandemic. What? What? Are you, what are you talking about? I, I thought you were like the. I thought you were the governor of Florida. This thing doesn't exist. Oh, I'm not the governor of Florida. I'm a very realistic person. <laughs> I'm looking at the world, and if it's a conspiracy, it's a vast conspiracy, huh, Ron DeSantis? You've got to take another look in the mirror, my friend, not outside. Look inside. I actually think um, vacation won't happen in December, right, for people. Mm -hmm. I was very grateful to go, as you can see from the 10. Um, mm -hmm. I was very grateful to go, but I don't think that it will. It's got to get worse when it gets colder, just like every other flu season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see these anomalies. People have been cooped up for a long time and they're busting out. I mean, when you went on vacation, Neil, was it crowded? So, it, you know, it was very interesting. I, I, I thought I was very original booking my trip to Cancun. Mm -hmm. uh, I went. Um, but uh, when we booked it, 90% of the the plane was 90% empty on the way back. When we came back, it was 90% full. So, you know, everybody decided that they needed to escape suddenly. On vacation is what that told me, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but it didn't seem crowded. No, not at all. Yeah. It seemed it seemed very empty comparative to other times I've been. Mm. And the uh, taxi driver was saying there's only like, you know, two slots that flights are coming in a day. You know, one in the evening and, you know, one from like two to four. And I was mm. like, oh, okay. Yeah, but you see these anomalies everywhere. I mean, the New York Times I think reported on the shortage of rental cars. Um, I have a friend who's going to Hawaii and of course, um, a friend who runs a rental agency in Maui and there's just no cars on the island. People are renting U-Hauls, travel vans, uh, residents of the Hawaiian Isles are renting out their cars like, uh, short-term rentals like Airbnb for automobiles, like a zip car, I guess. Yeah. You know, my friend has a very small lot, uh, mm -hmm. lot, you know, he probably mm -hmm. sells like 40 cars a month and mm -hmm. he, Kent, he said the price of used cars from last month, this is like we're talking April 2021 to May 2021, has gone up 25%. Mm. He expects it to continue to go up. Mm -hmm. He's like, how do I make sense of that in the world? He's like, okay, I've got to charge what I've got to charge, but this doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. He's like, well, I you... the market's driving it, but it doesn't make sense to me. I've been doing this for 25 years. I have no idea what people are doing. Yeah. Well, you see what happened with Hertz. I mean, I'm very impressed that the Reddit crowd got that one right. Hertz was in bankruptcy, of course, and uh, Knight had just sweetened their offer to about $8 a share in value. It's $240 million in cash plus warrants for a bankrupt Hertz. But I think you're right. It's driven. Uh, it's about 8 bucks a share. I mean, that thing was trading down at $0.50 cents, uh, before the Reddit crowd and the Wall Street Bets group picked it up. At 2 3 bucks. Yeah, yeah, and drove it up to seven. And, and the power of the crowds may be paying there. Yeah, well, I'm impressed. You know, that might be, you're right, the, the, the wisdom of crowds, just enough people voting. But I don't know. I think sometimes uh, you get lucky. We'll see. But this one was a win. And I, it, 
there's there was be- equity value there. And it's also, again, driven by this crazy shortage of automobiles and certainly of rental cars well, and well, of this surge in travel that's coming back. Two more years for, for chips to get back to normalcy? Yeah, that's what people are saying. A couple of years. I have no idea, actually. Neil, uh, uh, what do you think? Do you have any insight into that market and the backlogs? I, you know, I was trying to read a little bit about this, right? So TSMC uh-huh. did, you know, the Taiwan Semiconductor, the biggest manufacturer today, agreed to, or sorry, announced uh, a few months ago or longer that they're going to put $110 billion into more facilities, including a very large facility in uh, Phoenix somewhere, maybe Chandler mm-hmm. even right next to the Intel plant. Mm-hmm. Um, in response, the White House decided to uh, spend $50 billion more on semiconductors. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, like, it's like we're losing the war in a weird way. Uh, yeah. And the expansion's being taken up by a country we must protect and a company that a company we must protect, and as a result, a country must protect. And they're they're doubling down, and there mm-hmm. must be government incentive. It's a very strange world to look at that semiconductor shortage. Yeah, I think too, Neil. If you look, I mean, of course, China has vowed to take a leadership role in semis and uh, semiconductors, and they've been, you know, they had this massive fraud recently. So there's a ton of government money both in China and certainly now Taiwan and here in the U.S. to a lesser extent, poured into this uh, into this market. I, um, well, I feel like this is one the United States should be trying to win, right? Like, yeah. And of and all costs, all hands on deck. Ross Perot, let's stop making potato chips. Let's stop making computer chips. Mm-hmm. Kind of, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I'm reminded of. Ross was uh-huh. right. <laughs> It would have. It would increase productivity. You're on mute suddenly. I can't hear anything you're saying. I heard half a laugh and you left. Now I can hear you. Can you? How's that? Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> All right. Am I back? Yeah, you're back. Did you miss me, Neil? No. Don't cry for me. I'm back. I haven't gone anywhere. Um, the truth is I never left you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway. I wonder uh, what else is affected, you know, by uh, semiconductors in the world. What, what, what are the ancillaries, right, that are being affected um, that we're not seeing yet? Uh, a, a strange ancillary that I'm betting is completely unrelated but would be kind of funny in a weird way if, like, you know, it got reported that the Tigers couldn't play because they couldn't replace the chip and, you know, the scoreboard or the lights or something went out, you know, and suddenly yeah. Yeah. Can't play at their stadium. That would be a very strange ancillary, but we're going to see weird things pop up as a result of this. It's going to happen. Well, uh, I, I mean, chips are obviously in everything, so we're reminded of that with this shortage. But look, we've had uh, – problems producing enough resin. There's a shortage of resins. I mean, there's supply chain breakdowns everywhere. Most notably, of course, people comment on lumber in that market where prices are up. I mean, I'm scared to quote them because they're quickly outdated, but over 360% increase over a year ago in the in the lumber market. Um, we're just seeing these prices rise across the board. 
I think this is a very critical thing, Neil. You know, the last time we had an inflation scare, roughly 2010, it was driven by corn prices rising dramatically. That's one commodity. And the corn prices rose because we decided to divert a large part of the crop to ethanol. And that triggered or propagated a wave of unrest, especially in Mexico, where corn is a staple and where we were exporting a lot of our corn to, which was then diverted for ethanol production. And also, of course, the resulting rise in price. That spooked the markets and caused some riots in Mexico. It was one commodity, basically. And it was resolved the following growing season when new producers came in and we produced more corn. In 2008, six, seven, and eight, really, the oil price ran up. And that created an inflation scare, which broke the housing bubble by creating a little bit of upward pressure on interest rate. Um, again, it was one commodity. Um, and that was kind of resolved by an expansion of fracking uh, in the shale. The shale started to become more prolific and there was more. And the tar sands, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. The tar sands, to a lesser extent, they had been there before. But the shales became uh, more economical. You know, they increased the propent load. They did several things. Horizontal drilling came in um, and a few other things which increased the productivity of the shale wells. Um, and they became actually prolific producers for the next 10 years or so until 2018. And that brought the supply of oil back and then the price fell. So, but those, I guess, I really would like to just highlight were isolated kind of single commodity driven inflation scares. And if you look today, it's not just lumber, like I mentioned earlier, it's everything from soybeans to uh, to wheat, to corn, uh, to of course, gold and silver, um, oil prices now sharply rising, and there are bottlenecks in production for all of these things, uh, let alone semiconductors and resin. <laughs> um, so, this broad-based commodity rise does seem to suggest that this inflationary pressure is not transitory, as much as the politicians and the Fed would like us to believe. It's possible some of it, because of COVID, is transitory. Some of the you know shortages and bottlenecks are due to production stoppages, et cetera. But largely, it's so broad-based, it's hard to believe. Well, you did know the month where you're thinking about inflation a lot you know, a couple of years ago saying we're probably headed there for a lot of different reasons. 2016, Neil. <laughs> it's like five years ago. Yeah. Gosh, I started to worry. But, you know, what um, also happened back then was, again, most of the stimulus the Fed kept increasing with QE2, 3, and 4 was going still into the financial system where it was parked in a sort of stagnant pool. Now, when you look at the way the stimulus has been rolled out, of course, checks have gone directly to households. It's probably humane, certainly. But it's, uh, again, an end run around the financial system. You're putting hands directly, money directly in the hands of consumers. So that's uh, itself an inflationary pressure that we can't deny. Um, they just deposit that money straight into Robinhood accounts. Straight into Robinhood accounts. But also, it's been interesting to watch. A lot of debt has been paid down. But yeah. also, of course, a tremendous amount of spending has occurred on new cars, used cars, on 
Pelotons and exercise equipment on a lot of durable goods, new computers. And of course, that's led to some of the chip shortages as people have had to design their work from home space um, and make the walls look better. <laughs> Are you going to have an issue one day walking into an Apple store and buying a new phone? Is that going to uh, happen in the next few years? Or is Apple um, a big enough juggernaut to say it screws everybody else? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring Apple up. I mean, they just reported a blowout year, right? Um, it's been a wonderful time for tech companies. Um, it seems to justify their high and fancy prices on the shares. Um, the growth rates have been high, but probably, and certainly they even admitted themselves, Apple announced, not sustainable. And with those blowout results, the share price fell. The same thing happened to Netflix. You know, markets are very simple in, in one sense in their equation, Neil. If there's more buying, so if more money's coming in to a share or into a marketplace or into a crypto currency, the share price or the value uh, on paper, the price will rise. If there's more selling, then more sellers than buyers, it falls, right? I mean, obviously that's true. But the more Ponzi-like the market is, so you look at a Dogecoin, where there's nothing fundamentally sound about it, there's no cash flows, there's nothing there, um, but, a, but a trading sardine, it's very clear to see which way the wind is blowing. Is money coming in or going out of this Ponzi? And lately the money's been going out. Um, and things that are less Ponzi-like, <laughs> where you do have some underlying fundamental cash flow, say Apple. It's very interesting to also see that when the results are strong, the market starts to distribute or sell out. There's not enough buying pressure to support the share price. And that's usually, again, a sign of distribution in the markets or a shift in leadership. And we've kind of seen this rotation happening um, since late last year and especially pronounced since the election of a kind of rotation into inflation hedges, cash flowing companies, and less and less into um, long duration tech stocks with high sales growth, but no profits. Um, that did continue, especially into late February. But now I think with Archegos and the ARC fund sinking together, it's less likely. It seems like the, the bloom is off. Poor, poor Kathy Wood. I know. We have to pass the hat. But you have to ask the question. <laughs> right? Go ahead. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> For our how, listeners, go ahead and ask the question. Uh, how often does a, quote, star money manager appear out of nowhere at the age of 65 years old with no prior track record, who is terrible at due diligence, equity due diligence, clearly, who spouts a bunch of things which are questionable, can't really manage to do a spreadsheet right. Not, not even once every 20 years. Yeah, it's the whole thing is a very odd thing. And then the admonition on CNBC last week that she got her seed capital from Archegos, the disgraced fund that blew up in the end of March, from the proprietor of that fund, Bill Huang, and that they're close friends. Um, and he provided the seed capital for her first four ETFs. A lot of things start to make sense. 
about Tesla, about a lot of uh, crazy Kathy Woods uh, holdings in the ARC fund, um, and how many of those became screamers uh, and rose to unprecedented heights. I always thought it couldn't be a couple of Reddit bros or Wall Street bets guys or Robin Hood traders. I mean, most of those guys could buy, what, two lots, four lots? You can't really, or half a share of Tesla, <laughs> you can't really swing the needle there too much. You can't move it um, with those kinds of small traders. But if you have Bill Huang and he's buying tons of out-of-the-money call options, you know, and swinging $20 billion around, you can move a lot of things. And maybe that's your strategy. There are people who are into, you know, the Ponzi-like atmosphere and profiting from it, the old pump and dump or promotion <laughs> and distribution, however you want to think of it. Um, and then Bill Huang and Archegos before they blew up. I mean, he's trying to corner Viacom. For what reason? <laughs> Thank you, Neil, for asking the question, which is to date unanswerable. Well, I mean, most media companies are going down in value, right? All the time. It's very tough to maintain value. We're seeing consolidation. There's a reason yeah. Amazon's buying MGM. Right. Not just because MGM wants to sell, wanted to sell for the last decade. Right. <laughs> it's larger than that. Right. And why AT&T is, is entertaining their spin out. You know, we're seeing a reframing of a lot of the media companies, but it's fascinating. Yeah, you're right. Why? Yeah. Viacom? <laughs> right. Maybe he just thought he could, you know? He's got $20 billion of equity before the blow up. And he's, you know, got a $200 billion market cap on Viacom, maybe 10% of the float, and he could probably borrow more still. He felt like he could take a good... Uh, he just wanted to appear on MTV. I'm here to talk. Corner that. <laughs> it's even more simple than that, right? I'm overanalyzing this. But it's, it is fascinating, you know, to watch this. And I think there are more questions still than answers right now. But the relationship between ARC and then a whole lot of things, just, you know, the the way that Tesla was able to run the shorts into the ground, uh, possibly, um, as well as other parts of the ARC portfolio um, and really how they had such a such a momentum behind them is probably not, maybe not just Archegos, because if there was one Archegos, there is probably many more. Right. Um, they weren't alone, but they're probably a pretty big uh, part of the equation when you think about it. But I'm interested. The story has got me riveted. So, you know. You should need to write to Michael Lewis. He'll figure it all out for you. Put in a book next Yeah, there will be a book soon. <laughs> even before then, it's kind of one, it's fascinating to watch these things unfold, you know. How do you think the Israel conflict is affecting mm -hmm what we're thinking about in the market, the shortages, the just in general. I mean, it's, we've got a bunch of really weird things going on, you know? Yeah, Neil. Sense of the, and I actually remember the episode uh, with Frank Prendergast. Both you and Frank were saying, 
I, I'm fearful for the next couple of years and the violence that will pursue, um, ensue rather, as a result of all of the dislocations in the world. Both of you um, echoed that. And I, I really was a little confused. This is pre um, all the Black Lives Matter movement. This is pre mm-hmm. all of the things mm-hmm. happening um, that happened in the country. And you guys have been talking about this for thinking about it for a while. Maybe mm-hmm. this fits in, maybe, you know, this is the war that's been going since, you know, before our great grandfathers were, were thinking, yeah. thinking yeah. about families. Um, well, Neil, it's a, yeah, that's a very deep uh, and broad question, and they're probably well, maybe, maybe a lot of ways to answer it. Yeah, let, let me change it. How is it you're thinking about it as you're looking at the portfolio? Well, so, even stepping yeah. away from the portfolio, I think what Frank recognized back then and what I've been thinking about for a number of years is. Um, you definitely had um, um, a lot of inequality and distress in the economy that at least seemed to be on the fringes at first. But as that inequality has grown, not just within our society here in the U.S., but also just globally, um, you can see the effects in India, right? It's not going away. The healthcare it's unequal, right? The, the Indian government, which manufactures so much of our vaccine, which has helped the U.S. fight back the pandemic, um, they entered into these export agreements. Yeah. It's wonderful when you sign those contracts and you're promising the revenues. Um, it's horrible, though, when you're exporting the life-saving vaccine and your country is literally dying on the vine. Um and that exacerbates the same thing, this kind of inequality. Canada, our neighbor to the north, I think, um, I know these numbers are again off, but when we had about 40% of our country vaccinated, they were at 2%, uh, right? And I think that kind of um, inequality, in a sense, again, exacerbates ill will and bad feelings. It doesn't just have to be financial but just in the way that the supply chains work. And of course, ultimately in finance and power dynamics, we're seeing it. And of course, Israel and Palestine is the latest example of that. And we're just seeing this unrest that's starting to uh, really come, become part of our everyday lives. But, but I feel like we're at the be- we're not in the first quarter. We're like in the first 10th or 50th. There's a lot more. Yeah, this conflict doesn't shake out the inequality, right? None of it does. None of it's shaken it out. It's brought more to the forefront, say in Minneapolis. Uh Doesn't seem like it's doesn't seem like anything's really changed. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, been accelerated by the pandemic too, Neil. I think this has been brewing for a decade or longer, even longer. Yeah, but it it takes a while to come to the forefront. And I think kind of what uh, uh, an analogy I keep thinking of is what COVID has done is it removed, just ripped off a lot of the bandages that we put over to hide some of these uh, problems. Just-in-time inventory in the supply chain. (laughs) COVID ripped the top off of that and said, huh, you have nothing in terms of redundancy in your supply chain? Well, let's see how you deal with these shortages, right? 
and here we are squeezed to death in certain price points and um, you know backlogs and orders and just the real challenge. We don't even have, you know, at, at one point we didn't have the reagents to make the PCR tests in sufficient supply to test for COVID. I mean, it was all, it's been an ongoing saga. Yeah. Um, and yet I know we're trying a rear guard action or closing the barn doors, but some of the horses certainly have left and we're just trying to make up for it, but we're still behind. And to answer an earlier question, which went unanswered, how long will it take to ready and rectify this microchip shortage? Gosh, Neil, it seems like some of the experts, you know, you listen to the Micron um, uh, quarterly report and the CIO and CFO are saying it's two years um, before we can see some sort of normalcy. I don't know. I know what does happen in that market is, you know, they double uh, – customers double and triple order <laughs> so when the thing does normalize it happens very quickly it's a very volatile market because the double and triple ordering maybe quadruple ordering in this environment comes off the books pretty quickly anyway um yeah i think it's uh the the israeli-palestinian conflict is just again a sign of uh great frustration at the tremendous inequality and it seems insurmountable too you know, um, in the early stages, usually those who are under the gun or have more pressure financially or economically still feel like they can catch up. But there comes a point where hope gives way to um, despair. And then you see more, more violence flare up. And I'm afraid we're still going through that. I kind of feel like the, the new world order, if you will, is just regular violence. And that's pandemics um, or infectious diseases, um, I think it gets tougher for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's tougher for a lot of people going forward from here on out. Mm -hmm. That's not pretty, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, switch gears completely to something with me. Um, have you been following the Apple Fortnite <laughs> saga? <laughs> How can I help it, right? Although my son at 13 says Fortnite is for kids. So I guess he's now outgrown it in his mind anyway. But he's also a teenager, not a reliable my ten year old nephew horse, loves it. And my sample size is small. <laughs> so. My 10-year-old nephew still loves it. Yeah, I think it's that, uh, you know, 7 to 11 age group that really still plays Fortnite a lot. So what's your take on the saga deal? Um, I'm rooting for Fortnite. You know, kind of uh, maybe. Is it a, a David and Goliath thing? Yeah, it is. It is very much. You know, I invest uh -huh. in startups. I mean, what, did you want me to bet on Apple, right? Like <laughs> Abuse of power immediately, right? They have to. You'll see until proven innocent. Look, I love Apple products. Um, right. How could you not root for Fortnite? And if they make more money, won't they make better games for my nephews to play? Mm -hmm. That's my hope. If, if Fortnite wins, I hope the founder doesn't just go um, buy more houses. I hope that like um, he expands the market, which is also a really strange thing that I should care at all about a video game. But it's very interesting to just see how it's all playing out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, 
It's been weird yeah. to watch. Yeah, I'll tell you what's weird to watch. Somebody paid around $436,000 for fake real estate in Decentraland using the MANA token, which is based on Ether. So in dollar terms, that was about $436,000 or so. Why does it matter if you're a for a piece of fake real estate in uh, in a new metaverse? No, no, Chris, you're a crypto billionaire. What are you going to do with that money? You don't even know how to be productive. You've got I guess if I'm a crypto billionaire buying a piece of, of crypto land, <laughs> might be a good use. I can put my crypto yacht and my virtual family. I just don't I don't know what you do with your money the same way. You made a lot of money. If you're in crypto 10 years ago, what do you Oh, do? if you were in Dogecoin five months ago, Neil, you've got a 15,000%. Now, I'm speaking again in terms which are outdated. <laughs> are, you, are you endorsing that all your clients? Just I want to be clear on this episode. Are you endorsing that all your clients should put all of their money into Dogecoin? Neil, as much <laughs> as I love tulips... As much as I think tulips are beautiful, <laughs> I'm not buying them. And I'm not recommending anyone buy them. But you can watch with joy and detachment and refusal. But it's, uh, it's really fascinating. It's fascinating. And some people will come out rich and some people will lose everything. Right? There will be a few people who are winners. They've got always some lottery winners, but many, many more lottery losers. So, but we'll hear the story of the winners. That's what happens. Um, maybe, maybe we'll hear a few sad tales, but those are the majority and they're definitely underreported. Um, but it's a dance hall as investors, you don't have to go in. Right. But if you do go into it, you can enter with your eyes open and know it's a Ponzi. And as money is coming in, the price is going up. And as money goes out, the price is going up. Do you think of all crypto as a Ponzi? Um, right now, yes. And by Ponzi, I don't necessarily mean fraudulent. I just want to say it's the structure of the way these things are. Although some of it is fraudulent. I'm not saying it's not. And I'm not saying it is. Yeah. Really? Right. Because there, look, there's no... Um, you have to allow there's no way to fundamentally value this um, in the current environment. The only value seems to be that the price is the price itself. There's no cash flows associated with these. There's no assets. There's no IP. There's no technology you own. Um, really nothing but what someone else will pay you for it in the next moment. And then the moment after that and the moment after that, which is truly unknowable. Um, and there's nothing to fall back on other than price. So purely a Ponzi, right? In that sense. So, yeah. Um, now there's some interesting stuff happening, but again, Neil, I have, this is kind of my skepticism with space too, other than Leo's low earth orbiting satellites. I can't yet find a compelling business case for investing in space. And there's a limit <laughs> to the Leos, right? How many of those can we put up? We're already having a problem with space junk. 
Anyway, that's a separate issue. <laughs> but no, but I, mean, you, I haven't I haven't seen any good deal yet to me. That right. makes sense, right? Um, yeah. I'm okay yeah. with asteroid mining, uh, but I don't. It's not like I see a lot of those come across my desk because you know I'm a med tech VC. Um, yeah, well, that's always there's always a mining angle. Look, I just had a thing uh, on my desk. A company called CREE. I don't even know what the ticker stands for, but they're going to mine the seafloor, <clears throat> Neil. The seafloor. So they're not going to space. For rare earth minerals. No, correct. No, yeah. lots of people are doing it. This is very interesting. Well, why do we have to go to the seafloor? Isn't there a lot uh, of area on above the seafloor <laughs> that we could start with? No, maybe Why do but we have to make it the most expensive, ridiculous almost, operation possible sorry, almost for gullible investors? Almost every major country is going after it now, except the United States. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll let you invest in mining the seafloor. I, I find it interesting. It's not 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 something I'm going to write a check to, but uh, you know, this is part of the chip shortage uh, solution potentially. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you, Neil. I, I I watch a lot of these with amusement. Sometimes, again, I'm unprofitably confused <laughs> or silent or uh, sidelined. But uh, most of the time, it's fascinating to watch these things rise and fall. No, but I don't actually know what. So there's a lot of rare earth minerals on the seafloor. Fine. Mm -hmm. what Maybe. No, 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 there are. So what happens when we move them? We're not actually sure, right? Like, is there is there some detrimental effect that takes 30 years for us to realize? Like, maybe we should have left all of those there, right? And we should have mined whatever country instead. Um, mm -hmm. It's a strange thing. Yeah. But the commodity is going to become more and more valuable, right? Um, until we all decide that technology doesn't matter as much. Well, you know, with, um, with crypto, Neil... I see rare earth elements have a have a legitimate function and use. Crypto right now has yet to prove itself, and the white paper was written in 2007 that first uh, introduced the blockchain, right? So far, we have trading sardines in the form of many cryptocurrencies. Um, so no, I, I have seen. I, look, I've heard of. I'm because I'm not tracking this. Yeah, I've talked to a couple of an, a couple angel slash VC investors mm -hmm. about stuff they're starting to see in blockchain that could change. You know, that could go after a wireless carrier like Verizon. And so, and what would it do, Neil? What is the pitch that you've received that you find somewhat interesting and or credible? So 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 first of all, I didn't see the pitch. I just heard about it, but. One of them was um, how a new token was started where if you bought a small amount of equipment, essentially they're trying to set up a Wi-Fi network across the country. And from there it goes to a mobile phone network, right? And then every time you own a small piece of equipment, whoever uses it has to pay you, you know, a thousandth or, or less of a cent. I right? see. Equivalent. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can get royalty income with proof of ownership of some piece of equipment. Well, once what you, the blockchain's tracking who, where everybody's going to be able to use that Wi-Fi network, right? Mm -hmm. so it, starts, it starts as a Wi-Fi network, and then it ultimately takes on, you know, because theoretically the fanboys will adopt very quickly, and maybe it starts to take on a cell phone carrier. Um, decentralization like that doesn't seem crazy to me. 
And I think blockchain could accelerate some of that. So I do think we are going to see some interesting uses. And then we saw, I, I told you about this, this other company we saw that actually raised a fair amount of money that we quite like that was out of our wheelhouse um, for prescription benefits management, also mm -hmm. using blockchain. Mm -hmm. I do think there are going to be lots of good uses that people then turn into tokens um, as they have a good use, um, mm -hmm. or maybe they use an existing token, just piggyback. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think we're over the next 36 months, we're going to see a lot. We're going to see uh, some things potentially topple very large companies because of blockchain. Mm. 36 months. 36 months. I'm writing it down, Neil. And, and it's good. Predictions are hard, especially yeah, no, about the future. You've been wrong more often. Yeah, what, what Eugene says, uh, the, the past is stupid and the future is crazy. Right. <laughs> or, right, those who predict the future uh, know nothing. <laughs> I can't, never mind. <laughs> well, no, it, no, no. I lost my, lost my quote. No, no, it might be like your inflation, though. It just takes longer to play out, right, to, to get to the, the point that you're thinking about it. Look, it took five years for that thesis to play out. Mm -hmm. you started to, and you were probably thinking about it before 2016 if you were, if you're willing to start to say in 2016 it happened, mm -hmm. that you were like more confident about it. Yeah. Do, do I think we'll see stuff in the next decade? Absolutely. Um, but I, I think three years we'll, we'll start to see a first major move against a S&P 500 company. Uh, look, I don't rule anything out. I, I have long, learned long ago not to insist. Well, know? let's hope. Let's hope. You know, if there's if there's a better way to do something, let's do it more efficiently. Yeah. And Pomp, AJ Pompliano, one of the biggest crypto promoters, has started a crypto pizza What's chain. Crypto? What's crypto pizza? I guess you buy the pizza through his crypto site, and it farms out the work to a local pizzeria in your area. You do pay a premium rather than ordering directly from your favorite pizza maker locally. And the, um, the additional fee, the rake, the take, uh, is to be invested in um, some form of crypto or a wallet or something. I don't know. But it seems to me like so much in the blockchain, Neil, as there are solutions in search of a problem. Yeah, totally. You know, well, like this thing you're talking this about. Really this, this, right? There's like, is this really a problem that needs to be solved? Do Does the artwork of Beeple need an NFT attached to it? All right. So look, two weeks from now, I, I, I'm going to bring on uh, an angel investor that I know sees lots of, we'll call them blockchain deals, not always crypto. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll just talk to him and we'll grill, we'll grill the heck out of him. Well, I just am asking the open question, you know, what is the killer app after 14 years of blockchain being with us? Well, and again, look, if PBMs can can be uh, can be regulated in some way through a blockchain, that's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. That would be a killer app to me, right? Let's bring the mm -hmm. cost of prescription drugs down significantly. Mm -hmm. So I've seen at least one that I actually saw with my own eyes where they're executing, they're doing well, and it's happening. Mm -hmm. Let's see more. Yeah. Yeah. There we are. About saving, save, saving costs for people for drugs. Why should they pay more if they can pay less? 
Yeah. Neil, I had a friend I knew from the Deer Park Monastery, that beautiful place in Escondido, part of the Plum Village tradition. And uh, this monk had been formerly with Eli Lilly, not to name names, but it could be another drug company, Pfizer, pick your company. He was a lawyer and his job was to stop illegal imports, right? So where drugs were cheaper, say in Singapore, he, his job was to prosecute people, say in America, who were bringing the drug in from Singapore, undercutting the price that was charged here in the US for the very same chemical formulation. No wonder he became a monk. Yes. <laughs> it was called uh, what uh, parallel imports or something. He had to protect against parallel imports. The same drug, cheaper in another country. You've got to keep those markets separate and distinct to get the maximum revenue. So he felt that that was a disservice to humanity. <laughs> and it was an interesting insight into how those companies operate for me. So. Um, the Vision Fund number two closed. Did you see this? I did see this. Yeah, our, our good friend Mayoshi son. Yeah, Lasa. Yeah, he still <laughs> got it. He still got that promotional trick, right? But but, but it's him. It's only his money, right? Yeah, we, yeah. We invite yeah. partners to join Vision Fund too, but we're not popular at all. <laughs> right. right, right. Well, after he, you know shot the money out of the t-shirt cannon to all directions north south <laughs> east and west just hoping for a wing and a prayer and having so many uh, uh just awful screw-ups that made the front pages it's uh it's actually quite surprising and very interesting <laughs> to see the beginning um, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. The rule hubris. Out. The hubris starting to bite. Hold, hold on. I, I wouldn't rule him out now. Suddenly, with his own money, he's going to make even more money because he realizes not to be so hyperbolic. Possibly. He only has uh, to buy one Alibaba. He's the guy who's going to see that deal flow. One, one more Yahoo. One more Alibaba. Yeah, he's going to compete against Tiger. If he gets one, he's okay. Yeah. Well. It's possible, and he can swing those big out-of-the-money call options as well. So, I, look, I, 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 uh, I wouldn't say that you know he's throwing all that money away. I'm not, I'm not so quick to say that. I thought you know Vision Fund One was crazy because it didn't make any sense to me. This time, I'm telling you, I'm not so sure. Okay. Does Vision Fund Two also have a hundred-year time frame, Neil? You know, remember they, that hype? I, I sent you the deck. Yeah, of course, I remember the hype. Um, I a hundred year time frame, and you're putting WeWork in my hands, please. I I, I have not seen the deck. I'm betting it's not nearly as widely available. <laughs> but, but I'm betting that uh, you know the first ten pages about how Mayoshi son sobered up and went to AA and you know has come back down from from orbit and he's done he's done flying around with Elon Musk and Mars and he's back on Earth with his feet on the ground. Is that what you think it's going to say, like an apologia? No, I don't, but, yeah, no, but I, I, don't I do think I do think I think it's going to have just as many jokes and well, funny he, comments as the first one. A hundred year time frame. How, how could you the, look? Everything we've seen about this guy, even if he's like uh, Kathy Wood a little bit, 
He's survived for decades mm-hmm. in a tough environment and mm-hmm. thrived. It'd be tough to bet against him again. Oh, look, Neil. That old saying from H.F. Amundsen that came to me courtesy of Charles Munger, never underestimate a man who overestimates himself. That's this guy. It applies to Elon Musk. It applies to Massasone. There are a few out there, though they can be their own worst enemies and they can be the cause of their own self-destruction. He's done very well. And again, certainly with both of these guys that I've just mentioned, there's something absolutely on the ball with them, but there is also something that is hyper-promotional with them. And that second side is the real danger, right? And which door do you enter through in agreement with them also matters. I mean, if you're just buying a Tesla, don't put it, don't pay for full (laughs) self-driving and don't, don't, don't operate it in full self-driving. You're probably okay. Nice car, right? Hopefully no too, not too many defects, no customer service needs. Um, but yeah, in Masasone, you know, he did win big in Alibaba. He won big in uh, with uh, SoftBank, right, in Japan, taking on the big telecoms. That took a lot of fortitude. So, and then he owned what? Uh, Sprint for a while, right? Yeah, well, Sprint here in the U.S. And they finally just did their merger with T-Mobile, which, by the way, gives T-Mobile a tremendous, I mean, they have the best network, honestly. I know every company says they have the best 5G, but right. No, no, but when I was 21 and owned a cell phone store, T-Mobile uh, was like nothing. Right. 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 Terrible. Now, now they've got the best network ever, which is really kind of strange. Well, Sprint spent all that money, right. you know, and put themselves dangerously into debt. But that's, again, Masasone's, you know, just right on the knife's edge. He's willing to run. Um, and eventually, I guess he got bailed out. You know, the first tr- time around T-Mobile, the merger was scuttled. It wasn't approved. Eventually, we got through uh, this approval, or he did, and it saved the company, which was very near insolvency. Uh, but now the merger is stronger, and T-Mobile gets this brand new, or at least newer, and more built-out network. Uh, they, of course, assumed some debt. but When they took over that Nextel network at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So... It's really an interesting thing, and they have the the best frequency band in the network. The signal propagates the farthest, so they should have farther reach. But we'll see. Head, headquarters down the street in Bellevue. Ah, there yeah, you go. Headquarters, right? It's mm-hmm. not owned by the parent uh, in Germany anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The U.S. It's the majority owned by its by its own U.S. entity now. Mm-hmm. As a result of this deal, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see this uh, funny stat? Maybe this is a, a good way to end. Venture capital outperformed every asset class over the last three years. Yeah. Every asset class. Not yes. Dogecoin. Not, <laughs> not Doge. This is my exact reaction. Actually. Diamond hands, Neil. Not crypto. Not crypto. Which <laughs> <laughs> is still considered its own asset class, which is interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because to me it really is now its mm-hmm. own asset class, even if it's, you know, uh, not pegged on anything real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh. Well, look, the speculative winds can take anything up. You know, 
Semper Augustus is a wonderful tulip. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's got the stripes. It was the most valuable bulb, the Semper Augustus. You should look it up. It's a beautiful I, I, tulip. I actually have. I, I have looked it up because I go to the Tulip Festival every year in Seattle or right outside Seattle in Skagit Valley. Uh-huh. Um, and I do highly recommend if you're ever in the Netherlands, you go to the Kuchenhof, of course. I'd like to. My parents the Royal Garden. And in the springtime when the, all the tulips are blooming, it is really magical. Did you get a chance to go? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I've been a couple of times. I've, it's really beautiful. It's it's like you're in a, a, a fairy tale or something with all the flowers and the big, giant, beautiful greenhouse. But it's a fascinating reminder. <laughs> something that is beautiful. Do you think we're going to see more tigers come into venture over the next, you know, we'll call it 24 months, trying to push the price of venture up in order to try and eat some of that supposed margin? Yes, I do, Neil. I think it's everywhere. I think you're seeing, you know, companies like Open Door coming in and overbidding for single family homes in markets that they want to rent out. These um, asset managers are everywhere with a ton of money and um, a lot of leverage. And they're trying to really find a home for it um, in any market where they think they can take some market share and get a rake, some vigorish, a scrape, <laughs> a little bit of alpha or whatever you want to call it. And when they see big margins that have been enjoyed like they have in venture, they're certainly going to come there. Um, the fact that so much leverage and low borrowing rates have been available in the real estate market have led a lot of money managers, big firms, to overpay in the real estate market. You see it especially in places like where you grew up, Neil, in Arizona. It's just crazy. 20% over you know eight months increase in residential housing prices. I've, I've seen it before. I lived it in 2005. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what usually pierces that kind of bubble are just rising interest rates. Um, and again, how rapidly interest rates rise. I, I, again, am venturing a prediction. So please accept this with whatever caveats are appropriate and a huge grain of salt, because I don't know the future. But I'll say this does seem to be a very sustained push on so many commodities and in so much of the marketplace that the inflationary pressure seem very real. And I think it's enough to change the psychology of the market because now everyone's talking about it. So that in itself augurs constructively for higher interest rates, just how quickly that happens and how quickly we realize it is a question. Um, and the Fed's still playing dumb, so they don't see anything that's worrisome. It's all transitory. It's, you know, supply shocks and shortages, which is definitely part of the equation. But I'd argue it's something much deeper. And eventually, when you're printing up this much money, you have to allow, <laughs> you have to allow for the fact that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And this is something that we should really be concerned about. Even Janet Yelling said something. Like we might have to raise interest rates sooner rather than later, to paraphrase. And then she had to quickly walk that back because the market sold up. So that was about two weeks ago. She said, well, no, I was only kidding. <laughs> so in effect, again, to paraphrase. Two, two news cycles. Yeah, two news cycles. So really, 
everything that can be done will be done to try to support prices of shares but and the markets but that doesn't work i know we have this sense of confidence it's been 10 years or so but look the fed couldn't stop the market crash in 2008 they can't couldn't stop it in 2000 1990 91 <laughs> the end of 98 the end of 2018 last march it's a fallacy. They can pump things up, though, to an extraordinary height, though, with a lot of new money. And we're seeing it sloshing around in all the markets, private equity, especially venture. So just stick to your discipline, Neil. You know what to do. But yeah, <laughs> it's built in. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, have a choice but to operate the way we do. Yeah, yeah. Just keep your price sensitivity. Sometimes, you know, being an investor is one of those interesting things. There's so many ways you can be disappointed. One of my favorites is when I've passed on an investment or I've sold it too soon and I watch it go up. It's like, oh, <laughs> too early. That happens a lot. But That's I also know. Disappointed? Huh? That's one of your favorite ways as an investor to be disappointed. It's better, I it's think, if I've given it an effort, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes something I didn't consider goes way up. Um, and that's disappointing, right? Or the and the the all time most painful, of course, is something you buy <laughs> and your investment thesis had a hole in it, a big one or a small one, but the investment just leaks on down and doesn't really perform until you discover the problem in your or, or, reasoning or, or the execution wasn't there or whatever. But it no, I think the most interesting one that we talked about over a number of years was Affymetrics should have gone crazy. Mm. Mm -hmm. a lot there, right mm -hmm. um, should have gone up in value a lot uh but for whatever reason was held down in price for so long yeah that's another one you and see right mm -hmm. so like i think you got the investment right even though it never paid well that's a very interesting dilemma because that has happened a lot too or things are slow to respond um we're seeing that in some of the producers you know i think like uh well um Fertilizer companies have started to really rally um, because of the agricultural uh, uh, bull market that's developing. And again, generally commodities. You're still seeing it in a lot of the mining companies, uh, especially precious metals. The cash flows are tremendous and have been. You look at Kirkland Lake as an example, and this is not a recommendation anyone to buy or sell. See, we all have lawyers as friends. <laughs> <laughs> And some as frenemies. Um, but Kirkland Lake, you know, trading at roughly 10 times earnings is uh, just raking in the cash flows, paid off all their debt. They're buying back shares. They're being disciplined with the cash, not making crazy mergers and acquisitions. And yet there they are sort of at the lower tier in the market in terms of the valuation. But the cash flows are there and they have been there. And the price of the underlying metal is still going up and has been certainly stable uh, and much, much higher than it was two years ago when they were enjoying record cash flows. So it's uh, funny to see the market just kind of skip over that and go right to the tech sector, which is trading three times as high in terms of price to earnings or cash flows, um, four or five times higher in terms of price to sales. So you're looking at 34 to 36 times cyclically adjusted earnings on the general market, S&P 500 versus 9.3 to 10 or so on 
some of these mining companies. So you do see this. Um, some of the shipping companies, again, have responded. Um, but those are also trading pretty cheaply, certainly on a relative basis, demonstrably inexpensive. So there are parts of the market which have been recovering for a while and under the hood have been generating cash flows, but the share prices haven't really moved much or not as much as they, as the underlying fundamentals would suggest they should. This happened about a decade ago too with Costco. I was watching Costco and the numbers were great. The growth was great. They were still expanding their store count. Share price didn't move. Then about four years, 2014 or something, boom. <laughs> it starts to move up again. I don't know. Sometimes Mr. Market can be fickle. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. He'll decide to reward you when you, I don't know, when he's ready. Uh, people, you know, when the attention is drawn to something that's uh, really growing and has proven itself. I don't know. But what you can do as an investor, of course, is keep your investment thesis handy and make sure that it's being validated, even well, if the underlying share price doesn't follow immediately. Well, I think that's the important, like, maybe this is a good point for us to end on. If you don't have a thesis, you probably ought not be investing. You really do need to have one. It needs to be well thought out. And if not, you should seek out a professional. Right? It's super important in whatever field you're in, whether that's precious metals or public markets or venture capital. Don't go in without a thesis <laughs> and let it be well thought out. You have yeah. to see enough in order to write a check regularly, mm -hmm. in order to move your money in the market regularly. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah. I think we should stop and take a breath on that thought. Thank you for joining us on Market Meditations today. Thank you, everyone.